Thank you, folks. Appreciate it. Second Corinthians chapter number five. If you grab your Bibles and join me there, if you need a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Second Corinthians chapter number five, and uh, we'll get to the Lord's Supper here in a moment, just kind of as a precursor to it. We want to look into God's Word for just a moment. Second Corinthians chapter number five, and those who are a little bit warm, the air is on. Don't worry, okay? And so hopefully you'll start cooling off and if you're sitting there and you're cold, then get a jacket. Okay, anyway, uh, no, anyway, but uh, yeah, air's on, so hopefully it'll cool off just a little bit for you as we delve in. Hey, tonight's an exciting night. We, uh, boy, when cantata's just a week or so away, I get excited. Children's program and Christmas, and boy, it's an exciting time. And then tonight we get to observe both of the ordinances of the church. That's a delight. I tell you, I'm thankful for that privilege to do so. And the uh, Lord's Supper and then a baptism, man, we are we are. Uh, especially blessed. And every time we come to Lord's Supper, sometimes, you know, I, I like to take a, a break away from James and kind of focus in what tonight it represents, both here and behind us in the baptism. And yet, let me remind you too, I, we can come and we can talk about Christ and we can talk about the cross of Calvary. We can talk about his sacrifice. And most of us are well-versed in these truths. But you know what else I've noticed is, if hopefully you've noticed too, Christmas is upon us. And there are many things about Christmas that you and I are well-versed on and well-versed with. And we've spent many years looking at Christmas lights and Christmas trees. But I'll tell you, I sure do enjoy still looking at Christmas lights. I like looking at a Christmas tree that's all lit up. And it's even better when the kids can actually decorate. It looks halfway decent. I don't have to do the work. I can just sit back and enjoy. I like that. I like looking at that kind of stuff through new eyes. Little Caden and we were driving back from North Branch last night. And we're driving along and all of a sudden I hear, (gasps) Dad, yeah, Christmas lights. <laughs> like somebody who's never seen them before. And, you know, we go into a restaurant and say, Dad, yeah, Christmas tree. <laughs> yes, yeah, okay. And high, great intensity about just seeing. You know what? I like looking at things like that from a kid's perspective. Maybe somebody who hasn't been around as much as some of us to kind of get desensitized to it. Can I challenge you tonight as we come to the Lord's Supper? Let's look through it with those kind of eyes. With some intensity about what we're looking at appreciation and gratitude and thankfulness and uh, may we say just a, a, a renewed enjoyment and appreciation for what this stands for. Uh, this is a familiar passage too. I, I love this passage. It has become one of my favorite, if not my favorite, in all the scriptures over the last few years. Paul starts here and beginning in verse 14, and I want you to see what he does because I think it's crucial for us to understand. You see the title up behind me. It says this, the, the Christian's Daily Courtroom, and to kind of help us to, to keep that in mind, I've always wanted to do that. Okay, we got a gavel here, all right? And uh, I don't know where my dad got it, but he got it, so now I have it, and so it becomes a sermon illustration, Okay. Hey, Paul's saying, enter into a courtroom. In fact, he is literally saying that this is a daily courtroom for you and I as believers. Now, I'll tell you, on the surface, that doesn't sound very fun. To go into a courtroom daily, <laughs> you know? Maybe you've been there for a <clears throat> speeding ticket or something else like that. Or uh, maybe you've had to step into court for another reason. Normally, we're like, oh, I don't want to go to court and so forth. But here... This is altogether different. It's, I, honestly, it's better. Maybe some of you have, have dreamed of being Judge Wapner or Judge Judy or uh, Perry Mason or whatever the case may be, okay? This is so much better because you get to become and are to be, listen carefully, the judge. You get to sit in the big chair. 
Paul invites you and I to say, okay, we are the judge. We get to wear the black robe, and every day we get to get up there, we get to hold the gavel, and we get to make the judgment. We could say it this way. Paul calls you and I to be the judge, jury, and executioner. Now, be careful. Executioner not used as to put someone to death, but executioner, the idea who executes the judgment, the person who puts it into practice. The person who makes sure that it, it occurs, that it, it happens. Now look at verse 14. This is where he starts. And we've entered the courtroom as we can understand it. Notice it. He says this, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Now I want to challenge some of our young people here, in addition to each one of us as believers. Listen carefully. When we talk about entering to this courtroom daily, you as a young person maybe have not yet come to making a judgment as to whether or not Jesus Christ is worth living for. It is a one-time decision, yes, but it then goes on to be a daily decision where I wake up and I enter this courtroom and I must issue a judgment for today. And so some of you young people, hey, teenager, listen to me. Some of you right now are struggling with which judgment to issue in your life, in your courtroom. You struggle not only long-term, but you struggle day-to-day. And so, here's Paul. He calls you and I to, to be the judge. He says this, we thus judge. And so immediately, we understand that we are the judge. We have entered the courtroom. The facts, the exhibits, are going to be brought before us and presented so that we, in turn, must make a judgment. Every day, we make a judgment. For our entirety of our lives, we make a judgment based upon what Paul says here. Literally based upon what we have even confronting us tonight in the observance of the Lord's Supper. I would put before you as a lawyer might or a prosecutor might go to the judge. I I present to you Exhibit A. And Exhibit A is very simple. It is the obvious fact that Christ died on the cross of Calvary. In our courtroom, the Christian courtroom, it is an accepted fact. It is accepted as truth. He hung upon that tree. He was wounded and killed. While we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. The fact that Christ died on the cross certainly supported historically, definitely biblically, because that's where we find it. But oh, my friend, in the Christian courtroom, it is a fact that is assumed. So as we gather to gathered this evening, even as 1 Corinthians 11 says, we remember what Christ did. We recall it. We celebrate that death on the cross. So immediately, that's the first fact. And, and, and we know even from scriptures, the, the Bible says that, yeah, you know, there's many people that have died. So that's just exhibit A. Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. Well, exhibit B quickly follows on its heels not just the fact that he died but it's the fact that as paul says here he died for all he died for all you see my friend as this is exhibit b it's an important truth his death was not for himself it wasn't just for a few people no it was for others and it was for all notice this verse i i Calvinists have a hard time with this verse, 1 John 2, 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole who? World. 
So exhibit B is brought before you and I as judge. First of all, exhibit A, that you and I know that Christ died on the cross. Exhibit B, he didn't just die, but he died for all. So the evidence is presented. Immediately a case is being uh, constructed and presented to you and I. We're the judge. On a daily basis, we are presented with this fact. Tomorrow as you wake up and Tuesday as you wake up, my friend, you need to be reminded that Jesus Christ died and that he died for all. Oh, but there's much more as we see. Verse 15, the end of it, elaborates on this truth. In fact, it isn't uh, just that he died for all, but notice what the rest of verse 15, that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Notice this, but unto him which died for them. And notice what's added here. Jesus Christ rose again. Hmm. Can I put it this way? And this does not take away from the Trinity, but like the Trinity, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection go together. They go together. They're crucially important. They must be remembered and thought of encapsulated together because they have huge and important impact on the truth presented here. Paul said it well. You remember this? This is one of the most amazing statements he makes, I think, in 1 Corinthians 15 concerning Christ's resurrection. He says this, If Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. Now, my friend, those are strong words. And yet Paul says, listen, my, yes, Christ's death, crucial, important. It paved the way. And yet what goes with that is the reality that Christ was buried and praise be to God, he rose again. He rose again. It's crucial. And here you think, well, how important was it that he was buried? Well, think of it. Number one, it fulfilled prophecy, no doubt. But being buried, and yet he wasn't just buried, he was buried three days. If those things were not the case, doubt would be forever cast upon the fact that Christ was indeed dead. Nothing leads better credence and proof that Christ died than the fact that he was buried. He was buried for three days. And yet he rose again. And boy, him rising again on the third day. What does it present to you and I? Well, it represents us rising to new life. In just a moment, uh, uh, we'll have someone follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And I love the depiction identification. Christ died. He was buried. And boy, it's good for those who are getting baptized. He rose again. Amen. They come out of that water. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose again. And it is symbolic of the new life that you and I have in Jesus Christ. Boy, I sure do like Exhibit B. It makes verse 17 all that much more plausible and powerful. Notice it, verse 17. Therefore, if those things be true, that he died and he was buried and rose again, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is indeed a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There's that new life that you and I are called to live. We are given. Beautiful picture, beautiful truth. And I like what verse 18 says at the beginning. It says, all things are of God. You know, we get together tonight. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We don't get to celebrate what you and I did. We celebrate what God did. It's all of God. And praise be to God for the evidence that he has given to us even here again. 
as we consider exhibits A and B, it certainly does not stop there, but we are also moved to realize and judge, to come to a reasonable conclusion that just as he died, and just as he died for all, he died for all because all were dead in their trespasses and sins. So exhibit A, Christ died. Exhibit B, Christ died for all. And what necessitated even that truth was exhibit C, that Christ died for all because all were dead in sins and trespasses. You and I were dead in our sins. He did so to ransom us, to pay the penalty or fee. He died offering himself for us. We know the verse as well, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We would call it this, the trail of evidence known as Exhibit C. Um, we all know it well. It points to this simple reality that you and I stood of gr- in great need. We can fill in all the blanks. In fact, I want you to. You know it. Listen carefully. When I stop, say the next word. Very simple. For all have mm, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is So all of a sudden, the, the evidence, the, the exhibits, the proof of reality that, wait a minute, I'm dead in my trespasses. Oh, we know it. It goes on. Ephesians 2.1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins down at verse 21 the same chapter here in second corinthians chapter number five look at verse 21 notice it for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin he didn't know sin he didn't know sin that we might be made the righteousness of god in him so immediately we exhibit c says here here's the proof and the evidence and we're going to get to the judgment soon that, that Paul gets to, but we're right now, we're just looking at the table of evidence, the exhibits that are brought before you and I as a judge, and we are to consider these daily. We as a Christian are, are to throw the, the facts and the evidence out on the table, and, and you and I are, are supposed to consider these facts. These are not only evidence for salvation, but it's also evidence for something else that we'll come to that Paul says. But I'll tell you tonight, if you're here tonight, And if you are to be asked, if you died today, where would you spend eternity? And you cannot for sure say that heaven is your eternal home based upon what Christ did on the cross. Boy, my friend, could I encourage you to simply look at the evidence. You pick up the gavel. You make the decision. Listen to the evidence produced in God's Word, presented in God's Word. And you issue the judgment. You see, Christ died on the cross. He died for all. It was not on a whim. It was not pointless. It was for each one of us. And why did he have to die for us? Well, it was because we were dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins. Like a patient on a donor list whose time is short, who, uh, who, whose future is bleak, and whose outcome is all but guaranteed that it's not going to end well. And like a donor who gets a phone call, we have an organ for you. Oh, so much the better. My friend, you and I stood on the edge of eternity, ready to plummet into hell, and God called. And God said, for I so loved you 
that I gave my only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Changed everything. Hey, there is the evidence. And He gladly went to the cross of Calvary to do just that. But why? Why did He go to the cross of Calvary? Well, hence, exhibit D. Notice it. It's presented to you and I. It's in the beginning of verse 14. It's simply this. It's the love of God in Christ. I quoted, For God so loved the world that He gave. We quoted a moment ago, But God commendeth, He demonstrated His love toward us. I like this one. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. <laughs> Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. You know, today I, I, we gather around this table, we pass out the bread and the juice, and it, it is a family meal. We call it a supper, and certainly it is not the idea of a supper in modern-day terminology, but reality is you and I are gathering as a family. We're celebrating together. We're remembering. We're celebrating this truth. Man, what degree of love, what manner of love has God bestowed upon us that you and I are now considered brothers and sisters with Christ, and we get to partake. And that's great love, isn't it? A little bit later on, this same book, 1 John chapter 4, he, he writes this, or excuse me, same chapter 2, chapter 3. It's easy to remember. It goes right along with John 3.16. Here's 1 John 3.16. Hereby perceive, we can see it, it's obvious. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Why? Because he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. Us. Paul summed it up, this exhibit D. Uh, he summed it up well for us and presented it in verse 14 this way. We see it. For the love of Christ constraineth us. The Greek word literally means it arrests us. It imprisons us. It grabs hold of us and doesn't let us go. Aren't you grateful that nothing can separate you from the love of God? <laughs> Height, nor depth, nor, I mean, uh, Paul goes on in Romans there. I mean, none of these things, can start, it arrests us, it constrains us. My goodness. You put this kind of evidence in any court of law, the judgment is sure. Exhibit A, Christ died. Exhibit B, Christ died for all. Exhibit C, all that he died for were dead in their trespasses and sin. Exhibit D, the love of Christ in God is shown to you and I through the whole event of Christ's life. From Bethlehem to the cross of Calvary. It's an overwhelming case we're left to consider certainly that last exhibit. Really, we would might say it's the, the final presentation of the final argument. You, you think of in a court of law, maybe two lawyers, a prosecutor and a lawyer, they get up and they give their final arguments. And the one that has the last opportunity to speak, he tries to say something that sticks in the minds of the jurors. 
Something that they'll think on will resonate. They'll consider as they deliberate. And so for you and I, the, uh, Paul starts out with it with verse 14, but really it's a theme that runs through this whole concept and passage is that God loves you, for the love of Christ constrains us. And yet we must say that as we consider the facts, there is no deliberation that needs to be done. No deliberation. The the juror, you and I, uh, we don't even need to leave. We can take the evidence. A mere preponderance of the facts and the exhibits and the evidence makes the judgment a foregone conclusion. Yet Paul says, I want to draw something to your attention about this judgment. He said, this judgment is, is binding. This judgment is important because when you usher a judgment, and hey, young person, in your life, when you consider all these things, and you're saved, and yet the reality is you're looking at all these exhibits and all this evidence, and God has called you to, as we said this morning, to, to fulfill the duty, to be devoted to what he's called you to do, to live your life for him, you must issue a judgment. And Paul puts an interesting word right here in the middle of verse 15. It's this. He says, henceforth. So we judge, and as we consider the evidence and the exhibit, then we must issue a judgment that must fall under the guidelines of henceforth. It's interesting, sometimes in a a court case, specific maybe a criminal, a judge will instruct the jury what kind of sentence they can bring back. He'll give them the parameters by which the judgment is supposed to be made. Now listen to me, God is speaking through Paul, he's telling you and I, when we consider the evidence, there are parameters for our judgment, that when we issue a judgment based upon the evidence, it ought to be henceforth. Some of your Bibles, maybe in a middle column, explain what does henceforth mean? Well, it's coupled with the word not, so it means no longer. Um, it, it means that once we have ushered the judgment, things are going to change. That from henceforth, the judgment's going to stick. It's going to apply. There's no going back. Life will be affected totally and completely. Things will change. From this day forward, the moment I issue the judgment and I, the gavel is struck and the judgment is given, from henceforth, it is binding. It is to be executed. It cannot be undone. It changes everything forever. So with that being the case, in a normal court of law, jury would come in the defendant would stand you ever wonder why a defendant stands and maybe his representation well the reality is this it's because he is the one that the judgment affects most he is the one that it's going to have its full measure on it will be executed upon him or or put out in his life to be done but remember in this courtroom it is you and i yes we are both the one who is the judge and issues the judgment but we are also the one upon whom the judgment is binding we are the one to whom henceforth applies And so when the evidence has been presented, the exhibits have have been thrown out there in front of us, it is you and I that must stand 
So you know what? Join me in standing tonight. Go ahead, stand up where you are. If the person next to you is asleep, wake them up. They're going to think we're done. We're not. Some of you needed to stand up anyway. It's good. Now listen. All rise. We've all risen. The judge has been given the, the verdict, the judgment. It might be read in this way. In the case of every person ever given life here on earth, and based upon what God has done for every person on the cross of Calvary through Christ, how do you rule? Paul gives us the judgment. He says simply this. We find that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him. For the love of Christ must constrain us to do so. From today and henceforth, may all who consider the evidence follow the judgment. You may be seated. All right, Pastor Henry, thanks for the drama. Hey, but can I tell you, Every day, you make a judgment. Okay, from day to day, the, the exhibits don't change. From day to day, the, the evidence doesn't change. Hey, it isn't that God, oh yeah, He died today, He died for me today, and I am in my sins and trespasses today, but yeah, tomorrow, nah. No, the evidence is consistent. Every day, we enter into a courtroom, and yes, it is from henceforth, but boy, we're going to decide tomorrow if Monday is lived unto God. Tuesday, we're going to decide and we're going to issue a judgment. Those who live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but should live unto Him who died for them and rose again. At some point in our lives, hey, young people, there ought to be a time in your life where you issue a judgment. I've heard the evidence. And I'm ready to issue a verdict. I will not live for myself any longer. I will henceforth live unto Him who died for me, who died for all. As I was dead in sins and trespasses. And who loved me when I was unlovable. His love arrested me. We think upon that. And man, that first part of verse 14 just resonates in my head. I, the more I've studied it, the more I think, wow, this is so good. For the love of Christ constraineth us. You see, um, it's a powerful punch. It's really twofold. We said just a moment ago, it's literally part of the evidence. But can I tell you, it's also part of the judgment. It's twofold. It plays both ways. His love for us is the last part of the overwhelming evidence that comes into play. It's really the thing that just knocks it out of the ballpark. It, seeing that he loved me so much that his love is shown that I, I, we might be called the sons of God. We perceive his love because Christ died for us. It's the last and final piece of the evidence. But can I tell you, Based upon 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, notice it, you know this well. We love Him, why? Because He first loved us. 
So as powerful in the evidence as that statement is, for the love of Christ constraineth us, it is powerful in the evidence, but oh my friend, it is powerful in the judgment. Because we thus judge. He died for us. He proved his love. And as I come to fully comprehend and understand and appreciate his love for me, we've said it often, then it constrains me to have the same kind of love for him. And my love for him, don't miss it, my love for him literally arrests me. It constrains me. It grabs hold of me and won't let go and wants me to do nothing but live for him. We might tie it to this morning. We'll say this. You know what? My love for him constrains me to fulfill my duty. My love for him because he first loved me, it constrains me to answer and fulfill the charge that he has laid out toward us. My friend, tonight we'll enter into really a little bit of a reminder of the courtroom. Daily, you and I are called to enter into the courtroom as judge, jury, and executioner. And you and I should leave there daily with the judgment that I must henceforth live for him who died for me. No turning back. No turning back. Likely my favorite hymn writer, Francis Hadley, or excuse me, Francis Ridley Havergill, traveled to Germany. I believe it was around 1858. She traveled with her father. Her dad was going there because he had an affliction of his eyes and he was going there to get treatment. While in Germany, they stayed in the home of a pastor. As she was spending some time there in the residence, she was walking in one of the rooms and she glanced up and she saw a picture of the crucifixion on the wall. Immediately, the words under the crucifixion caught her eye. Uh, if you know anything about Frances Habergel, she liked to write poetry, many of them becoming hymns and so forth. And the simple statement caught her eye. More importantly, it caught her heart. The statement was this, under that crucifixion, I did this for thee, what hast thou done for me? Quickly, she took a piece of paper. She wrote a poem based upon that motto, and she, she looked at it, and frankly, in her own poet, poetic mind, she looked at it and said, that's not very good. <laughs> she said, ah, didn't, it didn't strike her as a, a good poem per se. And so, she, not being satisfied with it, she crumpled up that piece of paper, she threw it into the fireplace. Unbelievably, the paper refused to burn. In fact, it came out unconsumed and unharmed. Later, her father, after it had been retrieved and kept, later her father encouraged her to publish it. Soon after, Philip Bliss put it to a tune. It's in our hymn book. This is what the first line says that she wrote. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed that thou mightst ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I think it would be appropriate tonight as we enter into the Lord's Supper, I, I think it'd be appropriate for you and I to ask ourselves a simple question. What am I truly doing for him? What judgment have I ushered on a daily basis and in my life based upon the evidence could I challenge you tonight that we must commit to enter into this courtroom daily, and in doing so, we must daily conclude that we should live the rest of our lives unto him. He gave his life 
Now we can live our lives. Will you conclude that? These next few moments, these next few moments of reflection and consideration that we'll enter into in preparation to observe the Lord's Supper, may you and I in our minds and heart enter into the courtroom. May we say, Heavenly Father, thank you for the evidence that your word gives. Maybe if you're here tonight, you're unsaved, this would be a fantastic time to put your faith and trust in Christ. To cry out to him, say, Father, I realize I'm a sinner. My sin makes me deserving of hell, and yet Christ died for me. And so tonight, I'm trusting in him as my Savior. If you're a Christian, reality is sometimes we, we avoid the courtroom. It's unavoidable. Because if you don't show up to issue a judgment, the judgment has already been issued. You're living unto yourself. You're not living unto Him. May tonight you and I think about these truths. I ask the deacons to come forward this time. We'll segue right into our Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we have the instructions as the men gather to the front here. And 